Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. We're valorizing stability goals that bleed the life out of people, that sort of train people towards sociopathy, towards narcissism, towards bad behavior and towards massive existential crises or addictions or mental health issues because we are not holding space for who are you? What do you want? Who do you want to be in intimate partnership with? Which friends do you want to have? Is there a religion that speaks to you? Does art or dancing or play or poetry or literature bring you joy? Do you want to play music in the morning? I mean, just the most basic things about what bring us joy on a sensate level, on an emotional level. Once people are in these institutions, the way that society has crafted them and held them up as the pinnacle of achievement, you know, it's hard to tell somebody who's worked their whole life to get into Harvard, who's then miserable as a junior in Harvard, gosh, sorry, society kind of lied to you and your families lied to you. What's actually true is that this may not bring you the kind of joy and satisfaction in life that you were told it would. I feel for people who are in these situations, it's hard to explain that actually on some level they've been sold a false bill of goods. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Satya, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. I found out about you and your work by way of William Dershowitz, uh, who mentioned your book, Quarter Life, uh, in an interview I did with him recently. And when I finished reading it, the first thought I had was, where the hell was this when I started? Call I got out of college. Um, I thought this book was just so important. And I felt that it was even more important, not just to young people, but to other people as well. Like I related to it so much, even though I'm in my 40s. But before we get into all of that, I mm-hmm. wanted to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping what you ended up doing with your life and your career? Man, great question um, and relevant. Uh, my my mother was a psychotherapist for most of my life uh, growing up. She is now an astrologer and I think was shifting into being an astrologer. Uh, 
I don't remember how much I knew of that at the time, but uh, but she was in private practice as a as a therapist. Yogian, it turns out, which became very relevant. I mentioned in the book. And uh, my father was an ER physician growing up who then shifted into palliative medicine, became an author and um, and moved more into teaching and kind of administrative work while also being a doctor, but has been kind of a thought leader in the end of life movement, palliative care and hospice care. Hmm. So I have huge influence from both of my parents. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, this is something I'm always curious about when people are raised by uh, therapists as as parents. Uh, were you immune to all the stuff that most of us go to therapy to fix that our parents screw up? Uh, um, no, but I will also say I think my mother uh, successfully avoided the, any kind of of the psychoanalytic or kind of pathologizing stuff that I've heard other people grow up with therapists. And it's like they they just sort of feel like their parents are automatons sometimes with mm-hmm. with the therapizing. And I'm grateful to say that that I didn't get that. But I do. I I am grateful that I, I think I have two pretty conscious parents and a, and a pretty conscious step parent as well. Um, my my parents divorced when I was um, about 12, 13 years old. And uh, and I'm lucky to have a great stepmother as well. So uh, I could just go on and on about my grad. We have we have had our difficulties, you know, but I feel grateful that my parents have participated in. In the coming of age and wrestling with them, and we've had lots of big conversations and they've joined me in that. So I feel grateful for for the kind of shared growth. And and I dedicated the book to all three of them for that reason. Yeah, I get you know, For me, I kind of wonder if you're, a, you know, a parent who happens to be a therapist. It's like, where do you draw the line between being a therapist and being a parent? Because you have all this knowledge. And I think it was uh, Srini Pillay, one of our podcast guests, said he's worked with people who are child development specialists, and they have the hardest time with their own children more than anybody else. I yeah, and it must be so demoralizing, you know, to struggle in that way. I I do do think people end up. I was I was just speaking with somebody who's an orthodontist and their dog was having terrible, endless tooth pain. And um, and it's just so interesting the way that our issues find us sometimes. So uh, I, I, I will feel for child developmental psychologists who have who have difficult <laughs> children. <laughs> well, speaking of which, do you have children? I do not. Well, I have a oh. stepson I or, you know, part time stepson. My partner and I are not married, so I don't ever really know what to call this 12-year-old who was with us halftime. Mm-hmm. But my partner's son doesn't feel quite right. So he's, he's you know, he's my stepson now. I have two nephews who I adore. And, um, but I'm, I was very clear I didn't want children uh, myself. And I'm glad that I stuck to that. Yeah. Well, the, the reason I asked is given your background, how do you draw that boundary between being therapist and step-parent? Well, that's not that difficult. I mean, I I really am very focused developmentally on a different stage of life. So we'll see Damn. when he gets into his 20s how that works out. But mm-hmm. as a 12-year-old, um I'm I'm perfectly happy to bow out of most of the parenting and and let his parents do that work. Um Damn. So, that's that's not been hard. Well, speaking of parenting, I mean, you have a uh, mother as a therapist, a dad who's an ER physician. I come from the Indian culture where there's no, you know, more noble thing that you could do than become a doctor, which, you know, my sister fortunately satisfied our family quota. Um, but what was the narrative uh, in your household about making your way in the world? 
my my father wanted me to to either be a doctor or a lawyer. Uh, and I think probably leaned towards lawyer. It, he was not thrilled when I decided to become a psychotherapist. And, uh, the, the, the pressure was never very strong from either of my parents. But I think my father felt that I was going to be wasting my talents on some level as a psychotherapist. And I, and I say that cringing because I am sure that he would want to reach into this podcast and argue with me on some level around, <laughs> around that. Um, he has always been extremely supportive, but he 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 kept saying that he wanted me to make sure that I had a foot in the you know in the doors or the rooms that that would would make sense maybe from a policy perspective or from kind of a social change perspective. And I think he didn't understand how that was going to happen as a psychotherapist on a broader scale. Um, mm. But I had a clear sense that the work I wanted to do societally. <laughs> Um, was somehow going to make sense in this through this path. And I had to stick to my gut and my my soul, the clarity of where I was headed, you know, that it wasn't for me. Um, and I, I don't think I think yeah, I don't want to say just being a private practice psychotherapist because I, I believe deeply in this work and think it has massive impact. But I think for my father, he couldn't quite understand how this other side of me that he knew was going to come into play there. So uh, so he's, he's, he's delighted <laughs> with me writing a book and all of that. I think that he feels like there's, that things are making more sense to him now. Yeah. How old were you when you figured out that this was what you wanted to do with your life? Um, about two months before graduate school. Uh, I, I, I did not know what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, that comes through in the book too. Um, a lot of my, my crisis in my 20s, a lot of my confusion and pain and uh, uncertainty, having a liberal arts education that I loved and really wanting to make an impact on the world in some way, but feeling very confused. I had done a lot of, well, not a lot, but I'd done humanitarian work, um, volunteered places, gone abroad, uh, raised a lot of money, tried to make different inroads into working both at home and abroad on some kind of social impact, social change work, activism. And I was already getting pretty burned out from that. Um, and also felt like there was a lot of spinning of wheels happening in those circles of, of feeling like it was just sort of a whack-a-mole game of um, one terrible thing after another. And I needed a different narrative that wasn't wasn't sort of disaster chasing. And so I was having a lot of overlapping existential crises. And and when I encountered Carl Jung's work, um, I, I started to feel a, a real kinship and, and clarity and some sense of this is what I want to be doing. I want to understand how the inner world and the outer world are in relationship and not just feel like I'm trying to patch up wounds that, that kind of have a different origin, you know, so, so finding, finding the world of psychotherapy really has always been about finding Carl Jung's work for me specifically and and this deeper relationship to soul and psyche and, and being able to dive into that space and make sense of things from that point. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business 
all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So you were just about to start graduate school and you have this existential crisis. And I feel like a lot of 20-somethings have an existential crisis, at least for me, that they're not even aware of. It's as if they don't even know they're having an existential crisis. They just go on to the next thing on the list. Because I think that what became very clear to me in the dominant narrative, at least growing up in an Indian family and going to school at a place like Berkeley, was you graduate and then you go and you get a job. But there was no question about values, purpose, meaning, all the things we talk about on the show. And I also think I would have thought it was all nonsense when I was 20 if I had heard a lot of this. And one, why do you think that is? Like, why is it that this question of, you know, what's important to us in life outside of sort of the checkboxes of society's life plan are never part of the conversation? I don't know. Uh, and that's certainly stuff I try to tackle in, in the book and just in my work in general is we should be talking about the fact that the whole planet is, um, is well as mortal and that we are mortal and that those things are every single day seeming more and more in our face. 
and that it is problematic to raise people in a world in which death, disaster, pain, suffering, confusion is everywhere and not have a space for deep dialogue around it. Uh, I think it used to be that religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, old Christianity, <laughs> Judaism, you know, Islam, whatever, there's space in religion to really face suffering and pain and the reality of those things and mortality. Uh, but the, 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 the vast majority of, of people coming of age today do not have religion in which those conversations, those existential conversations are really being hosted. Uh, and I don't think they're happening in philosophy classrooms either. I think more, more and more they're sort of trying to happen politically, but it's just, it's just a space for pain and, and conflict and finger pointing and stress. Um, and so it's tragic that we don't have a clear place where we can be hosting conversations around meaning and purpose. Uh, and, and really what we want to do with this life. You know, we don't necessarily need to be thinking about mortality to really honor. We are here for a finite period of time. Uh, and we want to make the most of our existence. That, that just should be framed more and more instead of make as much money as you can on this planet as if, as if there is no inner life or there is no conclusion to all this, you know. Um, so it's so important to me that we bring, we bring those elements forward developmentally so we can be saying to people at the outset of creating the, the life that they're going to live. What life do you want to live? What do you want to do with your time here? Mm. Seems so important. Yeah. I, there are two things that I wonder because I feel like when you go to college, you're kind of being asked to make decisions about how you are going to spend the rest of your life when you've only lived a fraction of it, which to me right. is absolutely insane. People come in and they have this idea of what they want their entire life to look like. And I'll never forget somebody who once told me when I was an intern at Sun Microsystems, he's like, you have your whole life planned out. Let me tell you, nothing is going to go according to plan. Right. And my God, was that guy right? Right. I said that I said that recently on a in, a in an interview with with somebody who had just finished college and I could feel the the sort of devastation of that what I was really communicating. But but it is so important to say everyone is expressing climb this ladder, do this, get this degree, join this consulting firm, work for this, you know, whatever. And it's 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 a ladder that ultimately crumbles because because it is not hosting a sense of purpose and meaning. And that's the, that's what we classically think of as the midlife crisis. You know, people climbing ladders based on what they're supposed to do and the social expectations and the external needs and discovering that there is nothing up at the top of that ladder and they have to climb down or fall down or the ladder collapses. And then they face themselves and they face reality and mortality and existential questions and hopefully find a way to pull those two things back together. You know, and what I, what I am talking about a lot in the book is, how do we at the outset bring questions of stability and questions of meaning into relationship with each other so mm -hmm. that they can be in dialogue straight away versus versus deeply separated at the yeah. outset of life? Well, so this is a, a bizarre question, but let's say that somebody said, 
Satya, we're you know bringing you into a place like Berkeley, particularly an elite institution. I feel like there is this sort of cross off the, the checkboxes of society's life plan narrative when it comes to careers. But let's say somebody hired you to come into Harvard, Yale, whatever, like one of these elite institutions where that is the default narrative and ask you to create a class. What would you make that class about? That's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> um, I I don't know, because inside of college, people are nose down trying to stay alive, especially at, at elite institutions like that. Um, I would probably have to bite my tongue on some level because I think a lot of people in that situation need to reconsider if they want the degree they're getting, if they want to be spending the amount of money they're spending on loans to be in those schools. Um but, you know, I will also say that there have been some very successful programs around happiness at colleges or around, you know, uh, life purpose that I think are providing tremendous value to college students to really invite contemplation on things that are not exams and um, economics, you know, mm -hmm. and those those classes at various institutions have been overflowing. Uh, and so maybe I'd, I'd want to do my best to offer some some self-exploration and some tools for how do you identify really who you are and what you want when you're when you're out of this place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I want to bring back a clip from uh, my conversation with William, which was what prompted me to read your book and to reach out with you. Take a listen. There are two drives or two fundamental needs. And one is the need for meaning. And one is the need for stability. We need both of those things. And I would never negate the need for stability, which means getting a job and having a career path and all that stuff. The problem is that often one gets lost at the expense of the other. Mm -hmm. Usually it's meaning is lost at the expense of stability. That's what we've been talking about. Sometimes it's the other way around. The sort of stereotypical searcher who doesn't know what to do with themselves and is always pursuing meaning, but never achieves stability and is miserable for that reason. Nope. And Finding that balance, finding a way to have meaning in life, but also have stability is hard. It's psychologically hard. It's practically hard. But I think it's the work that young adults need to do. So with that clip in mind, I mean, we were just talking about colleges and, you know, we'll get into the book right after this. But I think particularly when you come out of that a place like the, the ones you were talking about um, and you're riddled with debt, I don't think meaning is very high on people's list of priorities when they're thinking, how the hell am I going to pay this debt off? Um, it, and that's a that's just that's depressing to think about. It's extremely depressing to think about, uh, you know, I mean, I just want to say because I'm a little distracted, just how much I respect Bill DeRezowitz's work and, and just want to name it, it. It's beautiful to hear you two talking about this. And, and I'm really honored, um, to hear the way this is weaving into his thinking and, and into your conversation. Um, but, you know, he lived directly and, and his book, Excellent Sheep is so much about this experience of, of young people being trained to go towards stability goals. Um, and then not being trained towards the humanities or a sense of 
you know, the, the value of literature, the value of philosophy, of art, all these things that can bring the inner life forward and, and create a sense of meaning, but that increasingly, and he really points this out, increasingly we have sent people, young people on a path that is about getting into the best economics program so you can get into the best consulting firm or work on Wall Street, whatever. We're, we're valorizing stability goals that bleed the life out of people that, that sort of train people towards sociopathy, towards narcissism, towards bad behavior and towards massive existential crises or addictions or mental health issues because we are not holding space for who are you? What do you want? Who do you want to be in intimate partnership with? Which friends do you want to have? Is there a religion that speaks to you? Does art or dancing or play or poetry or literature bring you joy? Do you want to play music in the morning? Um, I mean, just the most basic things about what bring us joy on a sensate level, on an, on a, um, emotional level. So it's very tricky then, you know, once people are in these institutions, the way that society has crafted them and held them up as the pinnacle of achievement, uh, you know, it's hard to tell somebody who's worked their whole life to get into Harvard, who's then miserable as a junior in Harvard, to say, gosh, sorry, society kind of lied to you and your families lied to you. And um, what's actually true is that this may not bring you the kind of joy and satisfaction in life that you were told it would, uh, that checking boxes may not, in fact, bring you nourishment and joy. That, I mean, I, I feel for people who are 22, 21, whatever, in these situations, it's, it's, it's hard to explain that actually on some level they've, they've been sold a false bill of goods. Yeah. Speaking of which, what is it that prompted you to write this book? I mean, I know that this is kind of your, these are the people that you treat primarily, right? People you call quarter lifers. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of, I knew that there was a gap in understanding developmentally for this stage of life that went very deep. I, I, I knew it because when I looked for literature to help me make sense of being lost and in my twenties, I couldn't find it. What I could find was either paternalistic or geared towards my parents, or it was utterly out of out of touch with what um, what I was living, or all of the above. You know, um, what did end up resonating with me bit by bit was stuff around the midlife crisis and the midlife crisis in the Jungian space. Um, you know, depth psychological spaces is really about the fact that you have not lived your true life. I mean, the the book titles can have things like, you know, things like the midlife crisis, learning about your unlived life or something. And so I sort of kept wondering, well, why am I supposed to not live my life and then have a midlife crisis and then go try to live my true self and my true life? So, so I was motivated and opening my practice for people in quarter life, which, which by the way, I define as being the, the first stage of adulthood, which is between adolescence and midlife. So it's the first stage of adulthood, 20 to 40, more or less, give or take. Uh, but then I opened a practice to work with people in this time of life and also wrote the book because it felt like there was a just massive gap in materials needed to serve this population and to make sense of what was happening in this stage of life 
that wasn't just go climb ladders, go get Mm -hmm. the best degree you can, go get into the best law firm you can get into. Something, I could see it all around me. Something was wrong with that direction. Yeah. Well, as I told you, I I think that the thing that struck me most when I I read this was the thought that where the hell was this book when I graduated uh, 20 plus years ago? I figured a lot of this out through trial and error. And one of the things you say in the opening of the book is that the prevailing impression is that adulthood arrives when you finally reach certain markers of economic and relational security as if those achievements will magically pull you out of the lobby of your suffering and into the grand hall of real life. And, you know, I think that I still feel some of this to this day, because uh, one of the reasons that I think I feel this, like, I, I feel like this book resonated with me because I'm one of those weirdos who graduated into two recessions. I graduated from Berkeley in December 2000 and from Pepperdine in April 2009. And Dan Pink talks about this in his book, When, and he says, you know, unlucky graduates who'd begun their careers in a sluggish economy earned less straight out of school than the lucky ones like me who'd graduated in robust times. And it often took them two decades to catch up. So I'm Mm. thinking to myself, geez, Dan, I'm like, so you're telling me I got another 10 years of this or another six years before I can, you know, get it together. Uh, You know, much to the dismay of my Indian parents, I'm still single. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, I mean, like to me, I, I still feel that. And so I wonder if you if you've seen somebody who would identify with the notion of quarter life, even when they're not, you know, by definition, quarter lifers. Well, for sure. I mean, look, I think there's a lot of things I'd respond to in what you just expressed. But but a lot of what I am trying to do in this book is almost yank down the wisdom from midlife conversations. And again, for me, most of this is happening in the space of people who are doing more soul psychology than than um, psychiatry or something. So uh, people like James Hillman, James Hollis, a lot of other folks uh, who who work in trying to understand how is it that people who have done what they thought they were supposed to do did not end up feeling satisfied in their life or their marriages fell apart or they're still single, whatever. And what that's really then about is, again, We are trained towards economics and I call it acquisition culture. I mean, we have this notion if you just get all these things in your basket, you're going to be fine and you're going to you're going to be happy. We train people towards goals of acquisition and not goals of intimacy and relationship and communication and comfort and and empathy and sweetness and And it turns out or relationship to nature, you know, it turns out those are things that actually bring us a deep sense of satisfaction in life. Um, Having a certain amount of money in your bank account, having a house that you love, having um, a degree, all those things can be tremendously supportive and and um, and bring people certain degrees of satisfaction. But if the person living in the house or the person that has that bank account uh, is in the, in their own soul still deeply suffering or anguished, it doesn't ultimately make any difference. You know, those things don't, can't transform the soul. They can create stability for the body and the life, but they can't do the deeper work. And so we, we just fundamentally need to be having more cultural conversations around what, what maybe was once represented by certain religious traditions or was once represented by certain philosophical traditions, but really has sort of been eradicated and replaced. 
by economics, by politics, by, you know, by capitalism, by white supremacy and patriarchy, they've been gobbled up. And we need to be de- we need to be coming back to, to deeper roots. Mm-hmm. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy to use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more and grow your business all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The fundamental distinction you make in this book is between two types, uh, meaning types and stability types. And you say that where meaning types are stereotypically the artists, philosophers, or musicians, stability types are the lawyers, people in finance and business, and people consciously seeking marriage. These quarter lifers may prioritize good grades, strong performance, and extracurriculars, long-term planning, saving money, maintaining a steady job. Uh, pursuing career advancement and building a family, all of the goals of security once seen as adulthood. And you say stability types often present as more anxiously inclined and guarded than meaning types and on the extreme end can have narcissistic or soci- sociopathic defenses. Stability types often function by controlling their lives and others. And so a couple of questions come from that. Um, what role do parents play in whether these people become meaning and stability types and what role uh, does culture play because it, it's funny when i'm looking at this i'm like you just described me and my sister in a nutshell yeah. 
My sister well, tell, is. Tell me more. Well, my sister is is you know she graduated from Berkeley with a three point nine seven. Uh, you know, finished med school was the chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. Uh, they you know, got a fel- finished a fellowship at UCLA. She just had a baby, you know, and he's really cute. And I'm just sitting. But there are days when I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, am I going to get to do all this with my parents? You know, are they even going to be around by the time I get to experience any of this?" And right. you know, I, it, like literally, I was just like, "Oh wow, you know, I'm the meaning type. I'm the weird artist. I always say God made a sorting error when He gave me to my family." Um, and my sister is the stability type. So it just made me wonder what role parents and culture play in how, you know, these people turn into one or the other. <laughs> well, gosh, I mean, there's there's so much in here. Uh, certainly, I mean, there are there are meaning type families, right? There are families of artists or philosophers or hippies or uh, there's there's families with chaos you could this could also be um well i could go on and on but there's there's different ways that we understand families in which people grow up thinking god i need more stability than my family gave me i am determined to find more stability than my family gave me and they are the black sheep of the family you know there's the lawyer in the family of artists let's say right or but but the opposite is more common because our society is more adhered. Our society yeah. is really more geared towards stability goals, right? Uh, we have a very patriarchal society that says, climb these ladders, head towards these goals, um, achieve, right? Achievement is is highly respected in in modern Western culture. Um and this is the true, I mean, as you say, in India, I'm, you know, it's, you were raised in the United States, it sounds like, but, but mm-hmm. in India, it's the same basic thing of doctors are great, right? Um, achieve engineers, whatever, whatever the expectation is of your parents, the notion is still, it's good to have money and stability and a stable family. Um, so society has a tremendous amount to do with this. And I think by and large, um, what what I'm trying to focus on is the fact that we are not hosting conversations of meaning. And so what happens is there are people who do everything they're supposed to do and then reach the top and say, but why did I do all that? You know, and that's kind of the classic midlife crisis, which has been going on for a long time. Um, or there are people who say, I don't know how to climb those ladders and I feel foolish. I feel like an idiot. I feel like God made a sorting error when he put me in this family. You know, mm-hmm. uh, meaning types tend to think there's something wrong with them. They tend to think, think that they were born into the wrong family or or the, they just need to get their shit together. You know, they're often depressed and anxious and filled with self-doubt and shame because they are not supposedly they're not doing what society thinks they're supposed to be doing. They're not achieving the way they're supposed to be achieving. What I try to emphasize in the book is that meaning types are probably almost certainly offering something to their family that nobody can really quite name, which is, and I talk in the book about Mira, who's an Mm -hmm. Indian American uh, lawyer who has a little brother, who's a meaning type little brother, who, um, She's always seen as being somewhat chaotic and, and, you know, can't quite get his shit together. But when Mira starts to have her own existential crisis, she looks to her brother and realizes he's been trying to follow his heart. He's been trying to sniff something out this whole time. 
And he actually might have more understanding of how to follow his heart and his soul and his creative passions than I do. And so the meaning type sibling very often then is holding a certain anchor for values or or suffering even that has not otherwise found space in the family through through the achievement goals and and you know the climbing and expectations. Well, let's talk about the opposite uh, end of that, right? I mean, I want money and I want stability. I want to have you know some of the things that my sister does. Like those are important to me, despite the fact that I'm a meaning type. And it's funny because. Even on this ladder of achievement goal, right? I got to write two books with a publisher. And you know how long that made me feel any sense of like, you know, accomplishment or fulfillment for about the the six months after I signed the contract. That's okay. about it. And then it mm-hmm. was just like, yeah, another, you know, it was literally just another checkbox. It gets stopped. It, like I've been on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list and like people interview me sometimes and introduce me as the Wall Street Journal bestselling author. I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I am. Sure. <laughs> Like it just doesn't, it's so, and part of it, I think, is because in the culture that I'm in, that doesn't equate to something extraordinary in the way that, say, becoming a doctor would. And yet you may feel exactly the same if you were, in fact, a doctor and your parents praised you for that. Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought about that. I mean, there's a reason you didn't go to medical school. Right. Yeah. It's, well, because the only reason I wanted to become a doctor was so I could drive a Mercedes. Uh, well, good choice. Right. So you I mean, so there's something here, you know, you're, you're you know, you're avoiding intentionally. Like if if the only reason you wanted to become a doctor was to satisfy your parents, I imagine, and, and to drive a Mercedes, um, you're you're not supposed to be a doctor. That's not right. Um, It may be that your sister is more innately inclined on some level towards that, but. I would be curious for you. I mean, you know, I don't know how deep you want to go with this, but um, if achievement isn't, if you have gotten many of these accolades, and I know you have, uh, there's a deeper question here of what is going to bring me satisfaction and joy? And and what is the self-work then or the life work that I need to do to move in that direction? I mean, that's the work I do with clients, right, is is if there is a persistent nagging or persistent longing um, that is hanging around, I really interrogate that kind of like a detective, a loving detective. But let's take this seriously. You know, Mm -hmm. what is this absence you're feeling? What is this longing you're feeling? Let's be present with it and get curious about it and say, what what do you really want? What do you really need down below, you know, down in there? What's going on and, and, and what would support you to feel better? Yeah. Well, one other thing that I wondered about when it comes to siblings in particular is the role that birth order plays in mm. stability and meaning types. I, because there are two things I noticed and I, I usually they're often I thought about asking you, you know, that question to start with. But I've asked a lot of people what birth order they were and. Like, and I don't know if any of the birth order studies are validated with real, you know, empirical studies, but I'm always curious because there are a couple of things when you look at my sister and I, when it comes to birth order, that were very different in the way that we experienced my parents. You know, mm-hmm. we're five years apart. Um, while I was going through sort of my formative period in life, you know, up until ninth grade, I shared a bedroom with my sister. Um, because uh-huh. my dad was uh, a postdoc and he got his first teaching position when I was a senior in high school or a, a sophomore in high school. And by the time my sister got into high school, 
Uh, he was tenured. You know, they had more money. She got to do a lot of the things I didn't do. And so I always wonder, you know, one, what's the role that age gap plays? Because, I mean, the age gap that my sister and I have definitely played a role in both our narratives about money and the experience we had with our parents. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. The truth is, this is not an area of expertise of mine at all. Uh, I I know there are studies uh, around this, and and I think very anecdotally um, that I talk in the book about how frequent it is that one one sibling is a stability type and one sibling is a meaning type, and they kind of split, you know, whether developmentally or 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 you know by birth, they kind of divide some of the goals and values and play off of each other over time. More commonly, I see that as the older sibling is the stability type and the younger sibling is the meaning type. Um, but I think you've just at, layered in a lot of other information around the economic um, place that your family was in, depending, you know, when you were born versus when your sister was born um, and maybe the five years versus two years. So I, I'm I'm interested in everything you're you're expressing. It's It's not really an area that I know that much about. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, well, let's talk about separation uh, from parents, because I think that this is something that you talk about in the book. And this one struck me in particular as somebody who lived at home way longer than I ever thought I was going to. Uh, you know, I mean, even well after graduate school, I was home on and off for probably the better part of seven years. So uh-huh. you say a healthy separation often involves setting new boundaries, improving the capacity for communication and sorting through all of the subtle and overt ways in one in Ways in which one's parents and siblings and countless others affect one's self-perception. The goal is self-knowledge, self-reliance, self-love, and self-trust and improved mm. intimacy with others. And I think the, the thing that you know struck me most when I think about stability, the biggest thing about stability for me is self-reliance. Like I just, and, you know, I've had to ask my parents for money a, a few times over the course of the pandemic I did because, you know, my speaking career more or less dried up and I like hated every minute of that. It's just like, God, how do I never do this again? Well, and what was, can I ask, what, what were you emotionally, how, how, how did taking the money change your feelings of guilt, shame, um, appreciation? Like, how did you feel emotionally tied to your parents as a result of taking the money? Well, okay. So the shame was definitely one thing where I'm just like, this is pathetic. I can't get it together. And my sister is just, you know, killing it. Granted, you know, the, the joke during COVID, yeah, my sister said it's for the first time in, you know, history, Indian parents are glad their children didn't become doctors because uh-huh. she actually worked in a COVID ICU. So we were wow. really worried yeah. about her every day. Um, but that yeah. was one component of it. And it was a sense of why can't I get my shit together? Kind of like, you know, we were talking right. about, but Ultimately, what it it came down to was this sense that why do I? I feel like anytime I take something, even though they say it's not true, there are always going to be strings attached. Yeah. So that that then becomes the the much trickier part of of the work of separation. Um, you know, it's so easy to move out of. I mean, I will say this: it's often not easy to move out of your parents' house. But one would think that moving out of your parents' house, whether it's to college or finally, you know, moving out into your own apartment or even buying a house, you'd think, OK, well, that's that. I've I've separated from my parents. But in countless ways, and money is often a huge component of it, people remain somehow psychologically tied to their parents um, in, in very insidious, sneaky ways. And so I 
I explore in the book and, and I do this with clients day after day is, is it's sort of like cutting the tiny umbilical cords or, or little invisible strings that we have. And shame is a huge one. You know, when people feel shame as regards to their parents, whether about their parents or in front of their parents, it can be very hard to, uh, to feel free and to feel self-respect and to feel self-love and to get into intimate partnership because it's almost like there's these fishing lines wrapped around your ankle that go towards your parents' house or your parents' lives, right? So, so this is a huge component of really healthy developmental work that is also something I don't think we really focus on enough is, is the subtle, subtle ways that we can still be tied to, to our parents. It might also be to our siblings or often to the church we grew up in or, you know, a football coach that had a huge effect on us. Like whatever these early relationships are. There's very subtle work uh, that needs to be done to say, I, I get to live how I need to live and it's okay for me to live how I need to live. Um, and that if you need to ask your folks for money and they're game to support you, that that, that comes with as little shame, guilt or, or self-hatred as conceivably possible because the goal is that you live you live your life as fully as possible and not kind of constantly feel like the loser of the family. You know, that's a tragic thing to carry on your back. You know, the funny thing is, I think that I'm the one who feels it more than they do. They're, they, yeah, I, I believe it. It's actually not them as much as it is me. Yeah. And well, I believe it, which means you have to let yourself off the hook because by not doing it in, in whatever ways this this dogs you, you're the one with your foot on your back, Yeah, you know, um, and looking to them for forgiveness or for love or for appreciation doesn't get that foot off your back. And so you're not going to live as tall and as clearly and joyfully as you want to live. Yeah. Well, one other thing that you talk about is this idea of uh, inequality. You say one of the great difficulties of being a therapist is regularly encountering the effects of social inequality and injustice in my office without the scope or power to alter things economically or otherwise for my clients or for the clients who never make it through my door. And you know, I, I wrote this article titled Advice for Freshmen based on a conversation I had with uh, one of my cousin's friend's sons who was starting mm. college here at UC Riverside. One of the things I said in it was, if your college offers free therapy, take advantage of it and don't just use it, abuse it, because it's going to be a lot uh -huh. more expensive in the real world. Um, right. So that raises two questions. Like one, I grew up in a culture where mental mental health was highly stigmatized until our parents grew up and started seeing, you know, all their kids getting divorced or having problems. And, right. you know, we saw their own you know people losing kids and, and just horrible things happening where Finally, people started to accept the fact that this is important. But I can tell you, growing up, therapy was for crazy people. Yeah. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think about like, you know, how much money and time, you know, I would have saved if I had gone to therapy. Like, I remember when I was 36, the I saw a therapist for the first time. I thought, why the hell did I wait so long to do this? Absolutely. Well, here, here. Uh, I am, I, I very deeply wish that we had, uh, therapy available, good therapy 
um, non-pathologizing therapy available for everyone in quarter life so that they could really face these these difficulties of psychologically freeing oneself up and living one's own existence and tackling everything from intimate relationship to parenting, you know, to to difficulties at work. Uh, if we had a more psychological understanding of existence, we would we would <laughs> we would be living in a healthier culture. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we need to be talking more about about oh, how, how hard human relationship is and how hard coming of age is, certainly. So. Unfortunately, I mean, I have to say that the the other tragedy here is that college counseling centers, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry to to name this, but but are often staffed by students in the psychology programs at the universities. Um, they are often seeing underserved, I mean, uh, you know, under um, experienced clinicians, and often clinicians who are more likely to prescribe than listen. And they're often understaffed. And so even free therapy at college campuses can be very disorienting for people. Um, so it's not just go to therapy. It's also uh, find someone who you really feel safe and good working with because um, because it is still the outset of your life and, and you need to be getting the best guidance you can get. Yeah. I mean, I, I one of my friends told me is like, you lucked out. A lot of people don't have, you know, good experience with their first therapist. Mine was amazing. Yeah. I was really I'm lucky. I'm so glad. I'm so uh, glad to hear it. It's true. Well, you know, it's funny. This is something you wrote at the beginning of the book, but I thought that this would be a really good way to bring us whole circle and ask you about, you know, when this actually starts to happen or what is the the thing that allows this to happen. You say the ultimate goal is an experience of wholeness, a life that no longer feels like one thing on the inside and another on the outside. And, you know, it, it, people talk about imposter syndrome. I have you know, people here all the time, even some of my most popular guests. I remember Seth Godin in one of his books writes every yeah. day, I feel like an imposter. It's like, wait a minute, really? You've written 17 best-selling books and you feel like an imposter? Um, mm. So obviously, I think particularly for creatives, this is, you know, like a notorious just it's an occupational hazard of being a creative person that you're going to feel imposter syndrome every day, no matter what you accomplish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you have the merger of stability and meaning, you know, what happens? what do you see happen in people's lives as a byproduct? Because I know you write about some of this in the book as well. What I'm hoping for is for people to, to, I mean, (laughs) this is complicated. It's, it's very, it's very individual. Uh, But I would want people not to have imposter syndrome, really. Um, I mean, if, if somebody was feeling plagued with imposter syndrome, who had written 17 bestselling books in my office, we would be, I, you know, sitting with the nugget of pain inside of them and trying to understand what, again, what, what is this part of them, um, trying to say? You know, in other words, I wouldn't just take it as fact that, that they're going to live with that forever. Um, what I'm looking for with my clients is a kind of both taking themselves seriously and taking themselves playfully, right? So, we really witness the the remarkably specific creative urges that are inside of them and try to take those things seriously. Uh, and so people create just beautiful lives, right? Uh, that work comes with grieving. It comes with grieving parents who have died. It comes with uh, healing trauma that they've experienced. It can take years and years. This is not like 
new age, snap your fingers, you know, uh, magical thinking kind of stuff. It's it's deep self-work. Uh, but it also goes against a lot of what society says, which is, again, just check those boxes, do those things, get those things, and, and you'll be fine. You know, write 17 books and, and you'll be satisfied. We know life is more complicated than that. Uh, so it's taking a more psychological approach to things. But, you know, but I've seen clients over and over, um, and I do this with myself all the time, uh, uh, just finding what is what kind of like a chiropractic adjustment, like what's what's hurting, what's not in alignment, and how do we bring those things into alignment again? So um, it's subtle self-work uh, all the time. And and the result is that hopefully um, we can all be modeling for each other, uh, not feeling like imposters, but feeling joyful and satisfied uh, on a planet that needs more, more joy. You know, this is always in the context of a planet that is suffering and in a society that is suffering. Um, but trying to not block that out and just kind of live climbing ladders and buying things, you know, it's trying to get deep into our souls and our bodies and say, what, what is this life about? These are big questions you're asking. I'm doing my best here. (laughs) (laughs) I've been known to do that to people. Uh, no, like I said, I, I really appreciate that you said that this is hard work. It's not sort of new age, you know, formula, snap your fingers, because I think that there is this sense that there's some sort of quick fix to fix these deeper issues. In fact, somebody wrote a book called The Quick Fix um, about right. this exact issue. And people often turn to self-help. And, um, and and I think the other thing I appreciate is the fact that this is not work that's ever done is what I'm beginning to see. I think that's there's right. this sort of notion in self-help and, and sort of, you know, it's like, psychology literature it's like okay i'm gonna fix all these things that are broken and everything will be perfect and i'll be done and that's right i can tell you you know i realized at a certain point i was like okay i've gotten answers to my questions for 10 years and i'm still asking questions right and you should be (laughs) you know again i mean i i had um Life is not easy and life in this moment in history is not easy, no matter what. And so if you're not asking questions all the time, that might be a problem. You know, if you, if you aren't experienced suffering even periodically, that's probably an issue, uh, is the irony, right? You're probably blocking something out, which is, which is going to show up at some point. So, so absolutely, this work is never done. It's, we're here. We're alive. We're mortal. Uh, this is again what all world religions used to talk about. Um, and what philosophy, theology, you know, this is this is what humans used to ponder. It's only recently that we've just sort of pretended like, uh, I mean, I feel like I'm a broken record now, but really, if you just acquire the right things that you don't need to suffer, it's not true. Um, and we can't continue to offload that onto other people or the planet and think we're going to get through this. Mm. Well, I think that makes a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, living deep from their truest self without apology. Hmm. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, uh, your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book and everything else that you're up to? Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor and a joy to have this conversation. 
My website is satyabayok.com, S-A-T-Y-A-B-Y-O-C-K.com. The book is Quarter Life, The Search for Self in Early Adulthood. You can buy it anywhere. Uh, there's an audiobook. There is uh, an ebook, I think. Um, yeah. And I do, I teach online and I'm around. So, you know, you can find me. <laughs> Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Listen up, I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.